towards the very end of our sermon series through the book of Colossians. We started this Easter day 2022 and we are finishing it today. Um, We have loved walking through this series because for the Christian faith, Easter is not just a day on the calendar. Easter is the lens by which we see all of life. Easter, the resurrection of Jesus, his conquering of death is everything. Without Jesus' conquering of death, we would be wasting our time. If he isn't who he said he was, then we're wasting our time. But we think he is, and he did what he said he would do. And so we've spent the last two months in this book called Colossians, this letter called Colossians from the Apostle Paul. Each week, we've said there there are three things that you need to keep in mind as we walk through the book of Colossians. So this will be the last time you hear them. So lock them in. Next time you come to Colossians, you'll be talking to a friend, and you're like, hey, let me give you a short summary of the book of Colossians, and they will be shocked. You'll look like the smartest person ever. So memorize these. Uh, First, this is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a young church plant. Uh, This is a church that was established shortly not by Paul, but by his friend, who we will talk about a little bit later. And he writes so that this young community might know what it is to grow in spiritual maturity. Paul writes that Christ began a new kingdom, that in his life, death, burial, and resurrection, a new humanity has been formed. A new way of living, a new kingdom has been established. And that spiritual maturity is learning to live in accordance with that new kingdom. That when Christ established this new people, he's inviting us to immigrate from our current way of living into his new way of life and life more abundantly. So spiritual maturity is learning what it is to live in that kingdom culture. It's learning what it is to live in the reality of Christ as king. And so in the closing of Paul's letter to the Colossian church, Paul offers a commendation, I almost said condemnation, commendation of his friends. So he's writing about all of his buddies, all of his pals, all the people in his inner circle. And this is a list of people that Paul belongs to. This is Paul's crew. And so he's ending his letter to the Colossian people saying, hey, here are the people you need to know. This is a group of people that Paul belongs to. And that sense of belonging, that sense of knowing who my people are, this sense of participation in a meaningful community, that's a desire we all know, right? We all know what it is to ache for a community to belong to. We all know what it is to want to be a part of something bigger than ourselves, And if you'll allow me a few moments to nerd out, I spent a lot of time this week unpacking that phrase. What does it mean that we all want to be a part of something bigger than ourselves? I spent 
a stupid amount of time. It was a lot of time. I spent a lot of time looking at movie quotes, popular music, psychological studies, theories for social change, and a lot of anthropology. And outside of a few interesting tidbits or nuggets of wisdom, almost all said what we already know. We ache to belong. There's very little commentary needed on that phrase. We all ache to belong to something. It's interesting and almost a universally accepted idea, but the pandemic made us aware of how much we long to be in social situations, how much we long for connection with another person. And for almost two years, we were utterly robbed of that ability to sit across the table for someone and to look in their eyes and to know that they accept us and love us as we are. We all ache to belong. I was reading, and there's this MIT study published at um, the end of 2020 that suggests that in the human brain, our craving for social interactions actually happens in the same place in which our cravings for food happen. So the place in which we ache for relationships is the same place that says, I want a cheeseburger. Or on a hot June day, I want a brown butter and pecan ice cream from Betty Ray's. It is the same place in which I want to be a part of the party. And some of you are already going like, ah, that ain't me. It's science. So there is something there. We all ache and want to be a part of a community. There's a different study that indicated that our experience of social isolation or loneliness originates in the same region of the brain in which we experience the sensation of physical pain. That in isolation and loneliness, it is almost an actual ache. It is this actual desire to want to be in a place of community. This is to say that we are all hardwired for social interactions. We are all hardwired to be a part of a tribe, to be a part of community that protects us and drives us forward and motivates us. And I think this is about friendship. I think this is about who do we have in our lives that we enjoy being around. But maybe more accurately, this is about participation in something meaningful. Something by which you can forge social values and shared beliefs. Beyond just friendship, we want to know that what we are working towards is contributing to good in the world. We want to know that we are on mission together, bringing about the best possible good. And I know the church has not always been this place, but I wouldn't have begun a church with Cassie if we were not utterly convinced that the church can be this place in which we find a community of meaningful participation. I'm still crazy enough to believe that this failed, or not failed, flawed institution called the church is a place in which we can be a part of a community that strives forward towards the good. And in this random grouping of names, more important than any singular name that Paul mentions, we can catch a glimpse of the good life. Paul is bragging on his friends. 
on the work that they've done together and the ways in which God has worked within them. At the end of my life, remember Paul is writing this from prison. And I imagine sitting in a prison, you have a lot of clarity. (laughs) Remember Paul is in prison. At the end of my life, may I be able to write a letter like this. A letter full of memories and friendships and a deep sense of awe at the work God has done and accomplished through myself and through my friends. May at the end of our lives, we be able to pen a letter saying, you should know so-and-so. And And I remember this time God showed up when this happened and this person was involved. May we have a community of meaningful participation. I believe that the church is called to be a collaborative community. Collaborating with God and with one another. That there is a synergy and a partnership both with God Almighty and with one another. And so that will frame most of what we do as we walk through this. I want to present a case of our collaborating God. That his intention is to partner with humanity. And then that Paul's understanding and God's intention for life on earth is for humans to interact. So... That's going to be our roadmap, the collaborating God and the collaborating community. Throughout the entire biblical narrative, God demonstrates a deep desire to collaborate with humanity. In Genesis, we read that God pulled together the raw materials of creation on his own, but his desire is to rule over the universe with free, intelligent beings like himself. Out of a desire for community... He creates humans in his image with free will and a capacity to create. Now, as we define this idea of the Imago Dei, the image of God that each human being bears, I think an essential component is this idea of creating. That in the image of the creating God, we are creating. I have never seen a rabbit farm. I've never seen a dog put together a building structure. The animal kingdom, as widely diverse and beautiful, it lacks an ability to create. They can create social interactions, but there is just a lack of seeing a future different than the one they inhabit. Our role in the created order is to partner with God in this creative effort. As Dallas Willard puts it, It would not be an Alex Sermon without a Dallas Willard quote. The human job description found in chapter 1 of Genesis indicates that God assigned us collectively the rule over all living things on earth, animal and plant. We are responsible before God for life on earth. However unlikely it may seem from our current viewpoint, God equipped us for this task by framing our nature to function in a conscious, personal relationship of interactive responsibility with him. We are meant to exercise our rule only in union with God as he acts with us. He intended to be our constant companion or co-worker in the creative enterprise of life on earth. That is what his love for us means in practical terms. 
To be made in the image of God is to share in the royal task of ruling creation. Who is our God? He is the divine collaborator. He is the one who invites us into partnership to rule over the created order. This is not a domineering rule. This is a rule of stewardship and management. This is, we are the babysitters of his creation. We're not in charge of doing what we want with it. We are to look to his example and to work to bring that about. We've been given a very specific duty to preserve, to protect, and to cultivate something precious. That has always been the task of humanity. Notice that in Genesis, as soon as Adam and Eve hit the earth, he's giving them a job. Like, we have always been created to partner and to work with God. And yet in Genesis 3 through 10, we understand that humanity's actions have ruptured that collaborative relationship. You know the story, we talk about it almost every time, that in rebellion, sin enters the picture, that we chose to define good and evil on our own terms. And although the relationship has been fractured, God's invitation to collaborate remains the same. And so the gospel can be understood as God's invitation to be his collaborating people. The scriptures time and time again testify to the lengths God will go to include humans in his good purpose. So bullet points real quick. We're not going to hit all of scripture, but here are a few good ones. In Exodus, Moses becomes a co-conspirator in God's plan to liberate the Israelites from Egypt. God could have done it in a second, but he found it better to collaborate with Moses, with Aaron, to bring about the liberation of the Israelite people. Numbers, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy lay out God's strategy for the Israelites to be a distinct people set apart from the immoral and unjust practices of the nations around them. In Jonah, the prophet, despite his racial bias, becomes God's reluctant instrument in inviting the Ninevites into God's love and grace. In Jeremiah, the prophet becomes God's mouthpiece, communicating instructions to Israelites who have been taken into Babylonian exile. And in the Gospels, Jesus' invitation is to show the world what it looks like when God's in charge, to live in the kingdom of God. And the book of Acts is the continuation of that. It's a demonstration of what it looks like for the apprentices of Jesus to live out the instructions, you will be my witnesses. You will show the world what it looks like to live in collaboration with God. The whole of the scriptural narrative is an invitation to participate, to collaborate with God's project of redemption and his building towards the future. I love this quote from Stanley Hauerwas. The task of the church is to serve as the best example of what God can do with human community. We are his signpost, his community in which he pours out his creative energy to say, what does it look like to live in love, unity, patience, goodness, kindness, to work towards beauty and justice in the world? The church, our calling is to be an example of what God can do with a human community. 
And to collaborate with God is to understand his plan for the future and to work towards it. So give me another moment to nerd out with you. Remember at the onset of chapter 3 of Colossians, Paul says this. If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Now, often when we talk about things that are above or this place we call heaven or eternity, we think of clouds, harps, and naked babies. Like, I said heaven, and you're like, oh, the Hillsong concert in the sky, like, where we're all just, like, in one continuous bridge, like, over and over and over and over again. But here's my challenge to you. You actually cannot really find that description in the biblical narrative. Rather, what you find in God's picture of eternity in heaven is a garden city where Eden becomes a metropolis, where Christ is our king and love is the law of the land. If you've ever tried to picture what heaven might be like, your vision kind of clouds over and you're like, I guess I'm standing there and there's a band, I'm just worshiping all the time. And I, I think that's more of like a, the last century's depiction of it in popular media than what actually is. Remember, at the beginning of creation, God created a garden with things for his people to do. That there will be work, there will be goodness, there will be love. And I think, again, remember, I'm nerding out, so no judgment. This is a judgment-free moment. I love science fiction for this. I love that we as human beings can look into the future and say, what would it look like for life to be better than what it is? What kind of inventions, what kind of cures, what kind of things can we look towards the future and hope will bring about a better life on earth? I think that the creative invention of science fiction can at moments portray a picture of God's plan for the future. Can you imagine a world in which cancer no longer ravages the human body? Can you imagine a future in which there is food aplenty for all? Can you imagine a future in which transportation is cars in the sky? I don't know that that's heaven. I just really am excited about that. Can you imagine a future in which God partnering with human beings creates a world in which Christ is king, and love is the law of the land. This is what it looks like to collaborate with God, to look into the future, to say, how can I be a part of the future that God is building? That is God's invitation to work towards the future now. Here's N.T. Wright quoting or uh, talking on the same thing. What you do in the present by painting, preaching, singing, sowing, praying, teaching, building hospitals, digging wells, campaigning for justice, writing poems, caring for the needy, loving your neighbor as yourself will last into God's future. These activities are not simply ways of making the present life a little less beastly, a little more bearable until the day we can leave it behind altogether. They are a part of what 
we may call building for God's kingdom. This is what it means to reveal the kingdom of Jesus, to live, work, and play as if Jesus is really in charge. Let's not keep doing lip service to this idea that Jesus is king. Let's actually step into the reality that our Christ is in charge, and we're just waiting for the moment in which everybody else realizes it. Now, I recognize that this might seem like a weird direction for a passage that is simply a list of names. But this list of names memorializes Paul's closest collaborators. Movie reference coming. This is Paul's Ocean's Eleven. It is an unlikely group of men and women working towards a mission. In this case, it's not robbing casinos. It's robbing the oppressive powers and promoting the kingdom and discovering friendship along the way. Ocean's Eleven, if you're not familiar, is an ensemble movie about 11 men who rob casinos in Vegas. It's fun. It's charming. They're doing a lot of illegal things, but it is a joy to watch them discover friendship along the way. And in some ways, this is Paul's Ocean's Eleven. And if you've seen Ocean's Eleven, there's this scene beside a pool pool at the very beginning of the movie in which George Clooney and Brad Pitt's characters pitch their plan to rob three casinos at the same time. And Elliot Gold's character responds to the plan. He says, you got to be nuts, and you're going to need a crew that is as nuts as you are. Who do you have in mind? Cue the music and the gathering, the team montage. As Paul's ministry goes, this is his motley crew of collaborators, the people as nuts as him. And it includes two messengers, three Jewish collaborators, three Gentile collaborators, and a few final greetings. So what I'm going to do is just offer a brief backstory on each of these people, and then we'll wrap it up. The first two are the messengers. Tychus is the carrier of the letter to the Colossian people, but he also functions as the news bringer. So I imagine he's standing up in front of the Colossian church. He reads the letter out loud, and he's like, what's next? What questions do you have? How can I update you on all of Paul's doings? Paul says he is a beloved brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant of the Lord. Then there is Onesimus, who Paul calls our faithful and beloved brother, Onesimus's story, say that three times fast, is the subject of the letter to Philemon. Onesimus is a runaway slave that Paul is advocating on behalf of. Paul fights for the dignity of the slave by using further language and charging Onesimus to return to Philemon and to fulfill his financial obligation. Once again, Paul is enacting the scandalous reality of Colossians 3.11, there is no free, there is no slave. Then Paul speaks of his three Jewish collaborators. These are Jews who have accepted faith in Christ. They have turned their allegiance to Jesus. And of Aristarchus, Scott McKnight says this. Paul's fellow prisoner... Aristarchus is yet another reminder of the empire's power, 
to protect, coerce, contain, and dominate. The term that Paul chooses was often connected to prisoners of war. It seems to mean a co-prisoner, perhaps even one who took his place in custody for a period of time. But the term may be a colorful metaphor with Aristarchus choosing to be part of Paul's imprisonment as a friend. Here's what you need to know. Aristarchus is a ride or die. He was that person who was down for whatever. He's like, Paul, whatever crazy idea you've got, I'm with you. Then there's Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, who we read of in Acts 4. And the reason for Barnabas and Paul's rift in Acts 15, um, Mark is said to have um, really abandoned Paul and Barnabas on the road. And uh, then at one point, Barnabas is like, let's bring him back. And Paul's like, no, that dude is inconsistent. And so him and Barnabas have a riff. Obviously, at this moment, Mark and Paul have somehow reconciled. And uh, this is the friend that you've had beef with at one point in life, but you've realized you were both out of line. So you have that like meeting where you're like, I'm sorry. And they're like, I'm sorry, too. We were arguing over something dumb. Mark is that friend. Then there's Jesus, a.k.a. Justice. Um, this is the only mention we have of this man. All we know is that he is a co-worker and that he follows the tradition. Uh, Jesus was a very popular, popular name in the first century um, before Jesus of Nazareth. So um, for Christians, it became a practice, if you had the name Jesus, to offer a second name so that people were not confused. Uh, it would be very confusing to say, let's worship Jesus, and the guy on the front row going like, yeah, that's me. Um, so those are Paul's three Jewish collaborators. Then there's Paul's three Gentile collaborators. The first one is Epiphras. He is a faithful minister of Christ, and on your behalf, he has made known to us your love in the Spirit. It is believed that Epaphras is the planter of this church. So when Paul is commending Epaphras, he is reaffirming this man's calling, his desire to minister to this community. We know that he is a man of contending prayer that he was praying on behalf of this small community of Jesus followers, and he is a tireless worker on their behalf. Then there's Luke, the doctor. This is the only instance of his name being used, but it is believed that in this instance, uh, or in the instances in the book of where the pronoun we is used, that it is in reference to Luke. Um, Luke is one of the most unsung heroes in the New Testament because he writes most of it. I know we think of Paul as the primary writer of the New Testament, but he writes a lot of short letters. He went for quantity. Um, he just wrote a lot of little things. Luke wrote two massive volumes known as the Gospel of Luke in the Acts of the uh, Apostles, and these are part one and part two. So Luke is a great contributor to the Christian faith. And then there is Demas, who is a relatively unknown figure, unless he is of the same. Um, there's an instance of a person named Demas in 2 Timothy who doesn't have a great reputation. So this is either before or after. We can only hope for Demas's sake this is an after instance because the other mention is that Demas is too much in love with the present world and he has departed from my mission. So 
Let's hope this is after. Uh, and then there are final greetings in which Paul commends Nympha, who is believed to be an influential woman in the Colossian church who had a church in her home. And uh, he's commending her for her courageous um, act of being a church planter in a city in which probably wasn't accepted very well. And then there was potentially the church that met in her house known as the church of Laodicea. A couple things we can um, gain from this particular passage is that the church in the home is important. Women can lead, and anyone who thinks Paul is a misogynist is not understanding the culture in which he wrote to. He is empowering at all moments to both women and the disenfranchised. And finally, there is Erichaphus. Don't quote me on that name. There is Erichaphus, and all we know is that he has a ministry, and Paul is encouraging him to complete it. At this point in time, it's worth mentioning that this is a letter. That Paul is not writing something to be read across all Christian ages. That is something God put into place. But Paul is writing to a particular people, to a particular moment, to particular issues. And that he is writing to encourage this small church, this small little community of Jesus, Jesus followers to stand consistent to stand constant in the faith of Jesus. And this is the point. Life in the kingdom of God is one of collaboration, both with God and with one another. Worship team, if you guys want to join me back on the stage, we'll land this plane. Life in the kingdom is one of collaboration with God and with one another. My hope for this community is that we pursue occupations, lives, families, workplaces, and projects that contribute to the justice and the beauty and the human flourishing of this city. This is to say, I hope that this is an incubator for nonprofits, for churches, for families, for gardens, for prophets, for initiatives, for poems, for paintings, for documentaries, and dreams that are birthed from this community in partnership with God. My prayer is that week in and week out, as we gather as the community of God, that dreams would be laid on your heart, that visions would come to your mind, that your imagination would be sparked, and your creativity would be aflame, that this would be a place that cultivates a collaboration with God. May it be that God speaks dreams into our heart, into our minds, that we can imagine a future better than the one we reside within. May it be. May it be a community in which we discover what it is to collaborate with God. And may this be a community in which we learn what it is to collaborate with one another. That when we hear of someone's plan, when we hear of someone's dream, when we hear of what someone wants to put into the world, we say, where do I sign up? What do you need? What can I offer? What can I bring to the table? May this be a place in which we meet partners, in which we meet business owners, in which we meet co-workers, in which we meet co-founders. May this be a place in which we say, 
how can I help? How can I be a part of the dream that God has birthed in your heart? And if you don't know where God is leading you, if you haven't received that dream from the Lord, your job is to begin just collaborating and fitting in wherever you can. Because I think in that process of collaboration, in that process of partnering with one another, we discover a lot about the nature of God along the way. And it clarifies the future and the way in which we may want to serve the Lord. So our spiritual practice for this week is to identify and center friendships in Christ to identify and center friendships in Christ. Make friends with Christians who spur you towards the good. This is not a Christian versus non-Christian conversation. It's a both and. You should have people in your life who don't know Christ, and you should have a lot of people in your life who are spurring you on towards Christ. The end goal, again, is to be able to look back over our life and reminisce about the good that God brought through you and through your community of friends. Center friendships in Christ. And this means you need to show up to Christian community. This means that you need to show up to places and spaces in which you can interact with other followers of the Lord. That sounds like a biased plug. If that's not here, that's fine. Like if Midtown is not your space, if Sunday mornings are not where you want to be, that is okay, but find a place. Find a space in which you can collaborate with others who are serving the Lord. And I'm not talking about your family or your spouse, but friends that live on mission with you. It doesn't have to be 50 people. Heck, I, can't, I don't even know if I know 50 people. But it needs to be two or three people who are pushing you forward to follow the Lord. You must put yourself out there. As an introvert, I hate this. Put yourself out there. Be intentional. This means keep working at it. Keep working to know someone's name. Have you ever sat down with coffee with someone and it's just an hour of like, this is an awkward conversation. I get it, been there. But there's something about continuing to work at something that after a little bit, you'll hit a stride and you'll out uncover a treasure of a friendship. Keep working at it. Friendships, like, we'll, we'll watch sitcoms, we'll watch TV, and someone will, like, they'll bump into each other and they're best friends the next day. That is not reality. Friendships take work. Keep working at it. We are called to be the collaborating community. And as we end our series through Colossians, as we end this beautiful letter Paul penned about the beauty of Christ, we end with this reality of knowing that we have the joy and the privilege of collaborating with the king of the universe and that we get to do it together. What a beautiful idea that in his wisdom, in his majesty, he knew that what he wanted to do was to create a people who would bring about the good in the world and that they would get to enjoy one another's company as we do it that our calling is to collaborate with God and to collaborate with one another. Let's pray. Father, you are the God of collaboration. You are the God who invites us to do good with one another. So God, I pray that in these moments,
of reflection that this week we would commit ourselves to one another. We would commit ourselves to uncovering what it means to reveal your kingdom here in Kansas City and that we would commit to doing it together for life is better done together than alone. Lord, it's in the name of your son who showed us the way. to the Midtown Church Weekly Podcast. To find out more or to join a church gathering, check out our website at midtownkc.church.